and we are going to be headed into uh, Romans chapter 11 in just a couple of minutes. We definitely uh, understand and recognize that we are, uh, we, know, we understand uh, first and foremost as, as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, that we are citizens and members of the kingdom of God. But we also recognize at the same time that we do live uh, in this country and we, and we do remember that there have been countless men and women throughout the history of our country who have given their lives uh, in service uh, through the armed forces. Um, some of you are, who are sitting here today uh, served in the armed forces, but we know that Memorial Day specifically is for us to take a minute uh, and remember and give thanks for those who gave their lives, who lost their lives uh, in the service uh, could have been in, 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 a, in a peacetime or in a wartime, but they lost their lives at some point uh, in the service of, the, of our country. And so I think it's right for us to just take a minute and give thanks to God for those who have served in that capacity. Again, I, we fully recognize as the, as the leaders of the church that are first and foremost, we're members, again, members and citizens of the kingdom of God. But we recognize as well our dual citizenship as we live here as citizens here in the United States as well. So if you would, would you take a moment and just bow your heads with me as we offer a time of just reflection and prayer and thanksgiving for those men and women who have served in that capacity. Lord God, uh, human history is of course filled with men and women who have given their lives uh, for uh, the cause of a particular geopolitical entity, a country. And in our own country, God, we know today, this weekend, specifically tomorrow, but this weekend, we, we remember those who in our own country gave that, in, in a sense, Lord, that ultimate gift, the gift of their life. They made that ultimate sacrifice. And God, we, we thank you that, that we, we know that, uh, that we, are, uh, we are able to exercise so many freedoms in this country. And those freedoms uh, came, Lord, at a high cost to many. So we recognize the service of those men and women. We recognize the sacrifice of those men and women. And we give you thanks for that. We pray, Lord, specifically for their families, the families who think today about that loved one who is not there. And Lord, it could have happened a long time ago, and yet there are some, Lord, where that loss could have happened very recently. And today, Lord, there are people sitting here today who, who are serving or who have uh, very close family members and friends who are serving and are, are literally in harm's way and, and could give, that, give their life at any moment. And so we pray for those families of servicemen and women all around the globe and pray that you would bless them with a sense of peace and, and encourage them and strengthen them for this particular time in their lives. Again, God, we, gave, we give you thanks and praise for all of this and for the opportunity to just come to you and acknowledge this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Romans chapter 11 is where we've been for the several weeks. And in fact, we've been in the book of Romans off and on for quite a long time. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Romans and taking some breaks for holidays and other special kind of things. But for 11 chapters... Paul has been sharing the power of the gospel. Step by step, he has shown God's way of putting people like us, sinners, lost, hopeless, helpless, right with himself. How Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. 
how we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, how the Christian life is lived not under the law, but in the spirit. And of course, how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Specifically, we've looked at that last part very in very in-depth in these uh, first four talks we had in Romans 11. We have looked beyond the horizon of time into eternity, and now we stop and Paul stops, kind of like maybe out of mental breath. Analys- analysis and argument must give way to some adoration. Like a traveler who is kind of like summoned, uh, summited uh, some ascent that they desire to uh, accomplish, Mount Everest or some alpine ascent. The apostle now looks out on all of this that he's talked about in this weighty letter that he wrote to ancient believers in Rome. And he contemplates. He pauses. The full wonder of God's glorious wisdom and power are utterly beyond human understanding. It staggers even the most mature Christian mind, including the mind of Paul, the apostle himself. God's wisdom is as inscrutable and as it is unfathomable as, as, as mere humans. These are matters that are beyond what we could, we could possibly put into words. And yet, before Paul takes the next step in Romans 11 to go on and outline, according to John Stott, some of the practical implications of the gospel, he simply falls down before God and worships. That's what these verses that are listed in your, in, on the back of your notes today are all about. It's, a, it's Paul taking time to just press pause to all of this very weighty, heavy, doctrinal teaching and simply pour out his heart to God in worship. And so he says in verses 33 through 36, and you can see those in your notes if you're following along with me, oh, the, depths, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Far for, I'm sorry, excuse me. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Pray with me for a second. Father God, as you give us a window into this heart of worship that Paul expresses in these few verses in Romans 11, we pray, God, that you would open them up in a manner that reaches beyond our intellect and into that place of surrender, that place of our will, that place of our, uh, the centermost being of our the centermost part of our entire being, Lord, where we surrender over to you and offer up to you our very selves in worship. We thank you, Lord, for this interlude in, in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we pray, God, that it wouldn't be just something that we know 
today, but instead, God, that it would change us by the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's, what we see here is often referred to in, in uh, Christian terms as something known as a doxology. A doxology is, uh, is a transliteration of a different word. Uh, doxology is not an English word, but it's a, it's a transliteration where we take a Greek word, doxologia, and we make it kind of sound English. <laughs> and so it's not a, trans, a translation as much as a transliteration. And so as we do that and we see that, we, that we understand that doxa meaning glory and logia meaning, meaning saying uh, or, or, or kind of a reasonable thought is basically what, what, what a doxology is. It's an expression of praise to God, oftentimes short and oftentimes used in a setting of Christian worship. And this is what Paul is giving us here in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. It's a simple doxology, but it's a powerful doxology. And in this doxology, I want you to just see four things as he, as he moves throughout these uh, words that he shares with the Roman believers. But ultimately, uh, he's also sharing them, uh, I think, as a exp- heartfelt expression of worship to his father. And the first thing is an astonished, amazed, overwhelmed exclamation. Paul makes this exclamation, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and, and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. That first phrase, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, could be interpreted two, two ways, and it kind of depends on your translation that you're looking at and what article it used. It could say, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, or it could say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So it could be Paul talking about the depth of the riches of this one thing, the wisdom and knowledge of God, or he instead could be talking about the depth of God's riches and also his wisdom. And that's probably the preferable uh, understanding, even though the translation that I have listed there from the uh, CSB makes it uh, kind of like the, 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 the focus on the, on the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's probably more Paul saying, as he thinks about the riches God has and the wisdom God has, the wealth and his wisdom, it, it is, is, he's overwhelmed to think and he's aston- astonished and makes this, um, this exclamation. It kind of uh, it goes along with this parallelism that we see in the next verse where, we, where Paul talks about, again, his judgments and his ways. That is, his judgments being what he thinks, what he decides, and his ways, what he does, and where he goes. And so Paul begins this, this, uh, this worship with just this exclamation of, you know, of, of, the, of the glory and the majesty and the grandeur of God. I think one of, the, one of the things we see about Paul is Paul is at the same time sound, reasonable, very practical theologian. He is one who is able to take some of the most difficult concepts of theology and present them, though they, they still take some work to understand. But Paul is a master at taking these complex theological concepts and realities and trying to teach the believers what it is, what it means to be saved by grace, what it means to be justified, what it means to be a person who is a new creation in Christ Jesus. But Paul, at the same time that he is that practical and sound and powerful theologian, he is also one who is heart, a heartfelt worshiper. There is one man who said uh, many years ago 
that we must beware equally of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. In other words, we should never separate theology and doxology. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's went on and on and on and on with this powerful theology, but he's stopping here and just, and he, and he wants his, these believers and us today in his own heart to remember that it, this is not, these are not just abstract concepts about um, some like conceptual reality, but instead what he's teaching them about is the person of God. And so he makes this exclamation that emphasizes the depth of God's riches, the depth of his wisdom and knowledge, how his judgments are unsearchable, and how his ways are untraceable. That understanding of the, of the ways being untraceable is kind of an interesting word. It, it, it's a word which literally refers to footprints that are untrackable, such as those of an animal that a hunter is kind of like unable to follow. Its only other use is in Ephesians 3.8 in the New Testament where it is rendered unsearchable and it refers to the riches of Christ. It's kind of the idea that the, uh, the psalmist was trying to communicate when he said in Psalm 77.19, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. How untraceable your ways are how unsearchable your judgments are. There is this reality that, he, again, even though Paul has done all of this remarkable theology, and theology is about helping people to understand the nature and character of God, but theology has limitations because in one way, God is unknowable. He's untraceable. He's unsearchable. He's beyond what we could even imagine or ask. One of the most, one of the, First and uh, foremost things that if you've happened to sit in any sort of theology class, kind of like the intro to theology, when, and oftentimes an intro to theology class at a Bible college or in my case in a seminary, when, it begins, when, we, when you begin to study the doctrine of God, oftentimes one of the first things the professor will say is, now remember this, we can never know God fully. Because there is an aspect to God that is unsearchable and untraceable. There is, a, there is this reality that God is beyond what we, to, to understand his fullness. And so Paul's just making this exclamation uh, just to emphasize that God is beyond what our human minds can comprehend. For instance, if we said this whole, that just a simple concept, God is eternal. He had no beginning. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Everything in my life, everything that I ever experience has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? To think about someone or something that has no beginning, well, that's beyond my ability to comprehend fully. I can acknowledge it and I can accept it by faith that God is eternal. But can I fully understand and explain to someone else how there is a being who is eternal, who has always existed, who never had a beginning? That's just one little example of a way in which God is beyond. This, this exclamation is Paul's attempt to remind us of that, that God is beyond. The next thing that Paul does is he asks a few rhetorical questions. He asks a few rhetorical questions. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? <laughs> Who has ever given to God that he, that person who gave, should be repaid? 
The answer to all three of those questions obviously is nobody. Nobody. It's ludicrous to think that we could add value to God, that we could teach him something. It's absurd to claim that we could know his mind or, or give him something so that he now would be in our debt. We are not his counselor. We are not his creditor. He is ours. We cannot reverse these roles. And so when Paul says this, and, and quoting these Old Testament verses, who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, I, I can't fully know the mind of the Lord. His ways are not my ways, right? Who has been his? Uh, what, what, what in the world would Dave Riddle have in his feeble mind to offer up the God that God would say, you know, Riddle, I've never really thought about it that way. Good point. I think I'll make an adjustment in the way I deal with all of humanity and, in fact, the entire cosmos. No. You see, that's why, it's, again, it's so important for us to remember. Sometimes I think, and here's, here's the fear, or here's the, here's the um, not the fear, the, uh, how do I want to say it? Danger. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Here's the danger. Sometimes churches that are very good at doing sound, excellent theological interrogation. And they create a confession of faith or a doctrinal statement that is good and solid and biblical and true. There is a danger in doing that, that somehow we come to think that all there is to know about God is what we've lift, listed in our confession of faith. And we box him up and package him up to such a degree that there is no mystery left in the person of God. And that's why these verses are so important, things like this, when Paul interjects these to remind us, listen, remember, you can't know him all, all, all completely. You can't tell him anything that he doesn't already know. And so, again, we, it, it just helps us to recognize our place in the relationship with God. He began with this exclamation. He goes on to this, these rhetorical questions. And then Paul makes a theological affirmation. The affirmation is this. From him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, God is the creator of everything. God is the sustainer of everything. God is the heir of everything. All things are coming back to him. Now, this certainly is in relationship to the, the world and, the, and, the, and beyond in general, but some scholars suggest that maybe also Paul is referring to, to the new creation as well, to what God is establishing through his kingdom and the power of the gospel, not just the creation of everything that we see and don't see. Not just that. Not just the fact that he's holding, again, the cosmos in his hands and he is in control of all of that. That he is the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. But also, he's the creator and the sustainer of this new creation, this new kingdom, this new reality that's being experienced by those who have received Jesus as Savior. From him. That's from him. New life is from him. New life is through him. 
and all of that is going back, all the glory should go back to him. And so it, 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 as Paul moves throughout these, these simple verses, he's making this, this exclamation where he almost recognizes how God is so far beyond. This, these, these rhetorical questions which acknowledge the place of humanity as it relates to the person of God and this, and this affirmation that God is above all, that, he is fr- that everything is from him, everything is through him, and everything is to him. And because all things are from him, because all things are through him, because everything goes back to him, then Paul makes this final declaration. And Paul's final declaration is one of simple worship. <laughs> To him be all the glory forever. If all things are from him, through him, and to him, then all the glory is whose? His. This is why human pride is so offensive to God. This is why we we should always walk in in a place, in a posture of humility. This is why I believe that one of the most common um, uh, postures of worship in the ancient world was one of your face being, uh, of falling on your face forward before God. Because it reminds us of our place before him. It drives us to a place of surrender. As we, as we understand what we believe about God, it should always drive us to doxology, which is the worship of, and worship is always a response to the self-revelation that God gives us through his scripture and through his son, Jesus Christ. And as he reveals himself to us, it's not just so that we might know a little bit more about him, because remember, there is a sense in which he is unknowable, but he is knowable through the word. He is knowable through his son. And and the the fact that God was so gracious to allow us to even know him a little bit should drive us to this place where we're falling face down before him with a life that's surrendered over to him. Theology and doxology, they uh, they should never be separated. The tremendous Truths of Romans 1 through 11, I would suggest, are what caused Paul to burst out with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. He's, all, he's taught about all this stuff about the person of God. And yet he's saying, man, this is in one sense. It's untraceable. It's unsearchable. It's unknowable. I've never been God's counselor. I can't understand his mind. I've never given anything to him that he should owe me anything. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. And so to him be the glory forever. You see, and if sound, good theology doesn't drive us to that place of exclamation and adoration, that place of doxology, that place of surrender, then we need to be very cautious. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. Our place is on our faces 
before him in adoration. As that man said, Bishop Hanley Mule, many years ago, we should be equally leery of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. Theology and doxology. That which we know about God causes us to simply surrender. Even in our limited understanding, even in our limited knowledge, he lets us know enough about him that causes us to say, to you be the glory forever and ever. It's why the psalmist wrote in the very last psalm, Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing grace, greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with this clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The worship of God. Yes, amen. God's, uh... The worship of God is not done in, an, in, a, in a simple, emotive way that is not informed by proper theology. But proper theology always drives us to this place. Or goes beyond what we know and takes, it to that, takes us to that place of surrender and devotion to God. And so this morning by design, we've, uh, we are going to provide for you uh, some time to reflect on the greatness of God and, time to, and spend some time at the end of our service today singing, uh, doing some group singing uh, just in response to this truth, kind of living out what we've had. We've had the theology of Romans 1 through 11. Now we have this doxology. And so today, as we've focused on some time in the Word, we're going to spend some time in worship. And so there's going to be a, a time at the beginning here where there's going to be some verses uh, from Psalm 27 that are going to be on the screen. It's going to be accompanied by some music. And then uh, worship leaders will give you direction as uh, we take you through that time. And then on into some time of song. There might be, for some of you, the desire to kneel. There might be, for some of you, the desire to stand. There is no one right way. Uh, you can do that which you are comfortable with and, the, and also that which God would be leading you to do as you spend time in this, uh, in this worship of our Lord, remembering, again, what Paul says, to him be the glory forever. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin that time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word from Paul today. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, not just to know about you, but to know you. And we pray, God, that as we respond today in worship, that it wouldn't be something perfunctory or ritualistic, 
but instead it would be something informed by sound theology. It would be a heartfelt celebration and a surrender to you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Receive our worship, Lord. May you receive all the glory through Christ.